0: lowndes county mississippi late 1940s a black truck driver and local business owner was driving down a back road late at night it was a dark night in the deep south up ahead was a white man who was taking a stroll in the road but the driver didn't see him until it was too late. The man had been hit and would not survive his injuries. It was an accident and the man was in the road, but it didn't matter. And the driver was taken into custody. While being held in the local jail, the man's wife, who ran the family business, a juke joint in Columbus, arrived to try to bail him out. No can do, said the jailer. The driver was staying put. A black driver hitting a white pedestrian, even though it was an accident, that was a problem. And in a place like Mississippi, a black man killing a white man, even under those circumstances, would likely mean he would never taste freedom again. But then, the jailer catches wind that soon he might have more to deal with than a Negro sitting in lockup who hit a white man. See, the white man who was hit was a card-carrying member of the Ku Klux Klan, the powerful secret society known for terrorizing Blacks and their white allies all over the South. And a mob of Klansmen are on their way to the jail to do what they do best, string up the Negro at the local jail, lynch him to avenge for the death of their clan brother. For some unknown reason lost to history, deciding to spare the life of the Negro, or at least not allow him to be a sitting duck, the jailer strikes a deal with the driver and his wife. He can let the driver go, and he'll have a head start on the lynch mob. But he can never show his face in Mississippi again. So the driver takes the deal. And after saying his goodbyes to his wife and family, he takes off, never to be seen in those parts, ever, ever again. This is the story of how my grandfather ended up in Peoria, Illinois. I am your host, Jay Poole, and this is Pot Stirrer Podcast. We have a Patreon shout-out this week. My husband, John, aka Chuckles, Is supporting the flying machine network thank you very much hubby for your patreon support we're also approaching our 10-year relationship anniversary so here's the 10 years of us and counting if you would like to support flying machine and the wonderful content being produced by all of our shows go to patreon.com flying machine at our one dollar mechanic level you'll access our monthly newsletter plus We'll give you a shout out on an upcoming episode of your favorite flying machine show. And at our highest level, our $5 pilot level, you get the $1 level access. Plus, you'll be able to listen to bonus episodes from all of our shows, 119 episodes so far, and more are added each month. So go to patreon.com/slash flying machine for your access today. When I'm not podcasting, or in my normal line of work, I have a number of other hobbies. One of them is tracking my ancestry and working on my family tree. Like most Black Americans, my ancestry has deep roots in the South. In particular, my dad's side of the family is originally from Columbus, Mississippi, and lived there for generations before moving up north during the Great Migration. As a baby, my dad, along with my grandmother and his siblings, all eventually settled in Detroit while my grandfather moved to Peoria, Illinois. I knew that my grandparents divorced not too long after my dad was born, but I still thought it was interesting that my grandfather ended up in Peoria, of all places. It seemed kind of a random city to end up in, while the rest of my dad's family settled in Detroit. We never had this conversation. My grandmother died when I was four, and my grandfather who my dad was never close to and by extension we weren't either, he passed away about 15 years ago. I didn't find out about the story I just shared until recently when a couple of my relatives mentioned it in passing. Even though this is a story from family lore and the people involved are mostly dead, it is a part of the history of the black experience in the United States and that matters. Recently, Senator Cindy Hyde-Smith of Mississippi, a Republican running against Democrat Mike Espy, made this comment in response to a supporter at a rally. Quote, If he invited me to a public hanging, I'd be on the front row. End quote. Here's why she's being criticized. Here's the big picture context. From 1882 through 1968, Mississippi had the highest number of lynchings of any state in the country. If you don't know what lynchings are, lynchings are essentially incidents of public murder or murder by mob. Lynchings often involved torture, beatings, castration, burning, and ending in hanging, while cheering crowds watched from below. In the South, Black Americans were most often the targets, as well as white allies. And lynching was used as a punishment for stepping out of the Jim Crow social order. Between 1882 and 1968, there were 4,743 recorded instances of lynching in the United States, including 3,446 blacks and 1,297 whites. More than 73% of those lynchings happened in the South. Even today, there have been a number of incidents of young black men found dead under strange circumstances that are hastily ruled as suicide by law enforcement, but the families and the community say differently. Lynching is part of the Black experience in the United States, and Mississippi has historically been the lynching capital. The other part of the big picture context for Hyde Smith's words is that her opponent, Mike Espy, is Black. But Hyde Smith's comments are commonplace in today's United States. Comments that came from a place of ignorance and racism were thrown around a lot during the 2018 midterm election season. There were ads with racist and xenophobic images and narration, including an ad pushed by Donald Trump so bad, even Fox News didn't want to touch it. The First Amendment to the US Constitution states Congress shall make no law. Respecting an establishment of religion, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech, or of the press, or of the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. One thing many Americans don't understand is that freedom of speech does not mean freedom from criticism or freedom from consequences. According to the U.S. Constitution, Cindy Hyde Smith has the right to say she would like to attend a public hanging, but others have the right to call her out on it. Freedom of speech as a liberty granted by the Constitution is designed only to protect us from government censorship of speech. It does not protect us from blowback from individuals or private companies. We'll get to private companies a little later. Hate speech can be defined as any persecutorial, hateful, and degrading expression that conveys a message of group inferiority about a historically oppressed group. Some people define the statements by Hyde-Smith, by Trump, and by others in the GOP alluding to Black Americans, Latino migrants seeking asylum, Jewish Americans, and others as free speech, while others would call it hate speech. This debate is fascinating, and it's very American. You see, Canada and Europe Have laws on the books against hate speech. These do vary somewhat in their wording, but they do restrict hate speech in some form. For example, Germany and France prohibit Holocaust denial. Holocaust denial and approval of genocide is also illegal in a few other European countries, as well as Israel. Even Russia has made it illegal to deny the Holocaust or portray the Nazis as heroes. But the United States has no such laws restricting hate speech. Historically, the courts have been on the side of free speech advocates in their rulings, upholding hate speech as free speech. The way the U.S. approaches the issue of hate speech comes into sharp focus during a time where we're seeing xenophobia, religious intolerance, homophobia, transphobia, and white supremacy normalized by those in power. From the local dog catcher to the president of the United States. And there is a trickle-down effect. We see children and adults radicalized with hateful propaganda and conspiracy theories. We have public outbursts that are captured on viral video. We see many school shootings, including Parkland and Santa Fe, that were committed by boys who were radicalized by white supremacist internet propaganda. And just last month, we had a week where that radicalization came into full view. Two senior citizens were gunned down at a Kroger in Louisville by a white supremacist because they were black after he failed at his initial goal of shooting up a black church. A rabid Trump supporter sent pipe bombs to the Obamas, the Clintons, George Soros, and several other democratic political and social figures. And an anti-Semite who often used fringe social media community gab shot 11 elderly worshippers at a synagogue in Pittsburgh. Words matter. Words kill. So I think it's important to evaluate free speech in context. There are real dangers to allowing unfettered free speech. And I'm not talking about targeted harassment, like cross-burning, vandalism, that kind of stuff. I'm not even talking about hate crimes those are in a different category than speech. I'm talking specifically about expression of ideas. But such laws, laws restricting speech, are only as good as those interpreting them and enforcing them. The thing is, sometimes regulations on hate speech can have an effect that is the opposite of what was intended. In an article by Gloria Cowan and her colleagues, These researchers provided an example where a free speech regulation was enacted at the University of Michigan to combat hate speech in the late 1980s. While many hoped the speech code would help combat white supremacy on campus, according to an ACLU investigation on the 1988 code, students most likely to be punished for violating the code were Jewish, Asian, and Black, and over 20 cases involved white students accusing Black students of hateful speech. There are a few instances where the regulation of free speech doesn't invite much if any controversy, such as yelling fire in a crowded theater. But censorship due to unpopular or even dangerous opinions is something different. And here, I actually err on the side of free speech. And I say that very much aware that this type of radicalization that has been normalized is a danger to all of us to varying degrees. I'm looking at this with both eyes open. This is not a defense of the anti-Semites or those who are anti-trans or anti-gay or those who are plugged into other forms of bigotry. This is actually self-preservation. Remember, like I said a second ago, laws are only as good as those interpreting and enforcing them. And to have a law that takes away freedom's work as intended, you have to guarantee that those in charge of enforcing the law will do it the way you want them to. But even if that's the case right now, and considering that we have Donald Trump in the White House, I don't know about that. But even if it were the case, you can't guarantee this will always be the case. It depends on who's in power in terms of how these laws are enforced. Some in power might consider rapist Mexicans in shithole countries to be hate speech, but others consider discussion of white privilege or others pointing out racism to be hate speech. I'm sure that most of you guys listening know that these are not equivalent statements, but how these are treated depends on who is at the helm. And that's where the problem comes in with censorship of hate speech. There may come a time where your speech is targeted. And before you say this isn't something to worry about, American history is full of people targeted by the government for unpopular ideas that were labeled dangerous by the powerful. One of the most glaring examples from our history is communism. Communism is an idea, it's a thought, and according to the First Amendment, communists should be able to believe in the ideology, freely speak about the ideology, and to peacefully assemble with like-minded people. But in practice, for a certain period in our history, this was not the case. At the height of the Cold War, the federal government cracked down on people and organizations perceived to be communist. In 1950, the Internal Security Act, also known as the McCarran Act, was passed by Congress, both chambers overriding a veto by President Harry Truman. This act required communist organizations to register with the U.S. Attorney General and it also established the Subversive Activities Control Board to investigate individuals suspected of engaging in activities deemed subversive or otherwise promoting the establishment of a communist totalitarian dictatorship. And communists could not become citizens. And if naturalized citizens were found to violate the act within five years of obtaining citizenship, they could have their citizenship revoked. While many provisions of the act were later found unconstitutional by the U.S. Supreme Court, this act was used during the Cold War to intimidate suspected communists within the United States. In the 1950s, hearings were held in both chambers of Congress to root out communists in many areas of public life, from politics to Hollywood. And the government to taint someone, a communist, often led to adverse action against them in terms of their economic livelihoods and social standing, not to mention their freedom. The FBI targeted civil rights organizations under the COINTELPRO program and justified their actions by calling them suspected communists or implying that communists had infiltrated these organizations. The U.S. was even on the wrong side supporting apartheid in South Africa, even in the 1980s, with the argument that the African National Congress or ANC and their supporters, the side Nelson Mandela was on, were communists in an oppressive white supremacist regime was justified because they were anti-communist. And did you know that to this day, there is a law that criminalizes Communist Party membership? In 1954, the Communist Control Act was passed with the goal of shoring up the McCarran Act. The Communist Control Act of 1954 criminalizes membership or support for communist organizations or other organizations that sympathize with communism. Communists, if convicted, could be assessed a $10,000 fine, a five-year prison term, or both. In addition, the Communist Party, according to the act, is deprived of the rights, privileges, and immunities of a legal body. The act was actually proposed by Senator Hubert Humphrey, a liberal Democrat, and more liberal members of Congress in both parties because they wanted to avoid a proposed amendment to the McCarran Act that would have specifically labeled labor unions as communist organizations, but at the same time did not want to be perceived as being weak on communism. Due to the major constitutional issues the Communist Control Act presents, it has been rarely enforced, but unlike much of the McCarran Act, The Communist Control Act is still law. So there is danger that restricting speech or expression, even if it's perceived to pose a danger, can trample on the rights of individuals to speech as well as expression and assembly. And if a right can be suspended based on the subjective concerns of whoever is in power at that given time that certain ideas are dangerous, that's not really a right. And even if we can say that certain ideas are in fact dangerous, such as white supremacy or anti-Semitism, censorship of ideas do not necessarily stop their spread. Across Europe, including Germany, Austria, France, and several other countries, places that have laws restricting hate speech, this has not stopped individuals in those countries from becoming radicalized and right-wing extremism from gaining currency. Right-wing nationalist parties, many of which espouse anti-Islamic, anti-Semitic, and xenophobic ideas, have gained popularity in recent years. Switzerland, Austria, Denmark, and Hungary have seen right-wing nationalist parties explode in popularity in recent national elections, but these have been emerging in other European countries as well, including Germany, France, and many others. These hate speech laws are by no means suppressing retrograde ideas. The answer to the espousing of destructive ideas is not suppression. It is vigorous criticism of these destructive ideas and countering them with better ideas. In the U.S. right now, where open white supremacy is increasingly normalized, the problem right now is not just that Trump and the GOP have been bold in using hate speech, it's that others in power, whether it's politicians that oppose this Or the mainstream media have been largely lukewarm in rising to the challenge. It's as if there's fear of challenging these awful ideas honestly, head-on, due to worries that calling these ideas what they are will push away parts of the electorate that buy into them. But the time for civility is long over. These calls for civility are essentially opting out of our civic responsibility when it comes to free speech, and it allows bad ideas to triumph. Rights come with responsibility. Remember that freedom of speech does not mean freedom from criticism, freedom from being challenged. We need to realize that those who are bought into these ideas will not be brought back into the light by handling them with kid gloves. They have already bought into the idea that the other side is the enemy. In their offense at the ideas rightly being called what they are, transphobic, homophobic, racist, xenophobic, intolerant, bigoted. That's their problem. We need to be just as bold and strong in our criticism of those ideas and be willing to confidently express our own ideas, diversity, acceptance, peaceful coexistence, empathy, and why these are important to advancing a proper civil society confidently express our ideas just as strongly as they're expressing the retrograde ones. Outlawing speech we don't agree with is a lazy way out. In the wake of the Pittsburgh synagogue shooting, the social media website Gab, where the shooter frequented, was dropped by their web host as well as by PayPal. I was reading a fascinating collection of opinions on a random discussion board on the internet, about these developments related to Gab. The debate that was being waged was whether or not the host, Joyant, or PayPal should have been able to drop Gab due to their popularity with users with extreme right-wing opinions. Much the same question comes up when talking about, for example, the white supremacist website, The Daily Stormer, being booted by their web host, or Infowars being banned from YouTube, Apple, and Facebook. Actually, Oops, I Talk Politics did a great episode on Alex Jones back in August. It was episode 43, and they touched on this question. Does essentially censoring radical voices through removing them from internet forums prove their point that they're martyrs to their cause? Definitely check that out. So libertarian voices such as Ron Paul have been critical of social media companies suspending and banning right-wing and libertarian accounts due to violations of hate speech provisions in their terms of service, arguing that these companies are silencing dissent. The idea is that social media platforms have terms of service that set out expectations for users, but are selectively enforced, which in their view is suppression of free speech rights. Ron Paul specifically argues that these companies are working with the government to silence dissent. Although the claim that these companies are doing the government's bidding is a bit tenuous at best, the idea that social media companies have an obligation to be free speech zones is pretty fascinating. Honestly, I think it's sort of a weird argument coming from libertarianism. Generally speaking, libertarians tend to take the view that government should be extremely limited. It should interfere with the rights and liberties of individuals as little as possible and that private businesses should not be regulated by the state. Companies can make their own decisions regarding what goods and services they sell and who they sell them to. The market interview will determine which companies succeed and which ones fail, and individuals can vote with their feet, depending on the factors important to them. So if, for example, a photographer refuses to provide wedding services to a same-sex couple, Most libertarians would argue that while they may not personally agree with the photographer's position, the photographer has the right to deny service. The same sex couple, as well as others who take issue with the photographer's stance, can use the services of another photographer who is willing to work with same sex couples. If the stance a photographer takes is unpopular in their community, they will lose business, and that will either compel them to change or they will eventually go out of business. This argument, though, is a bit naive. It assumes three things. It assumes there's always competition, that competing businesses will accept the patronage that others might refuse, and community standards are just and fair. But that's not necessarily the case. The Jim Crow period includes plenty of examples that demonstrate these assumptions aren't always accurate. The Civil Rights Act was passed in 1964 in response to that reality. And in one of its provisions, it prohibits discrimination by private businesses open to the public on the basis of race, color, sex, religion, or national origin. There are also laws in some states and localities that extend anti discrimination statutes to include sexual orientation and gender identity. Senator Rand Paul, son of Ron, has gone on record that he opposes this provision of the Civil Rights Act because he is against the idea that private businesses should be told by the government who they have to serve. But it's easy to take that stance when you don't think it will affect you. But when your own ox is gored, it's a totally different story. Many of these internet companies, including the social media giants, web hosts, and internet financial services like PayPal, have very little viable competition. These internet companies are under pressure by their sponsors who are under pressure by members of society who have chosen not to support them for these reasons. And they're not supporting the sponsors due to sponsor support of these internet companies who have chosen to host the speech of their right-wing elements. At the end of the day, private companies in a capitalist society are driven by profit, not ideology, not free speech ideals, not social responsibility, regardless of what they tell you. Laissez-faire capitalism and individual freedom are not interchangeable. So these private internet companies, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Cloudflare, PayPal, they are simply exercising the very freedom that libertarians have supported in principle. You live by the sword, you die by the sword. But despite the drawbacks with the libertarian take on this, it is fair to explore the role of social media and other internet companies as platforms for speech. These days, speech isn't just disseminated in books or at marches or in speeches on a soapbox. The internet is the new frontier for speech. The challenge is that, in general, it's not a public square in a traditional sense. Access is granted to most Americans through private companies. Pages are hosted by private companies. Trade and commerce is facilitated through private companies. Communication is shared by the power of private companies. Even this podcast is housed by a private company and each episode makes it to your ears through one of many private outlets. And it's not just right-wing conservative or libertarian voices who are affected. Left-wing individuals and groups have been targeted too. For example, when PayPal terminated service to the white supremacist group, the Proud Boys, they booted Antifa organizations too, even though there is no evidence the groups are equivalent in terms of message or violence. Also, criticism has been made on Facebook for suspending people of color who have shared instances of racist treatment on the website and have vented about discrimination by whites while allowing bigoted and inflammatory posts to remain and allowing housing ads that target specific demographic groups in violation of the Fair Housing Act. The vast majority of Americans work for private companies, and most of us depend on our employment to support ourselves and our families. And particularly for those of us who work at medium to large-sized businesses, we depend on our jobs for our health care. But most private employment is at will, meaning that you can quit at any time and you can be fired at any time for just about any reason. Employers often check their employees' social media, so be careful of those drunk pictures that you post on Facebook. Your political ideology, political, or social activities can be used as a reason for an employer to fire you. And it's perfectly legal. So, given this ever changing landscape in an increasingly capitalist, corporatist culture, should legal protections of individual speech be expanded to protect us not only from censorship or infringement by government, but by private corporations? With the principle of corporate personhood, And an even more conservative Supreme Court than the one that gave us Citizens United. It's hard to imagine government regulations being expanded, protecting individuals from corporations beyond existing civil rights statutes, but I think it's worth considering. That said, any regulations on businesses in this direction should be clear, and we need to be careful of unintended consequences. I would say that there is a place for organizations to have a specific mission and allow for some control over who they do business with to advance that mission and i think this is what makes additional regulation on businesses difficult i really wish i could suggest a more concrete solution but i can't but it is something that's worth us thinking about and discussing over time more and more we're finding ourselves in what is effectively a corporatocracy ruled by businesses If government is taking a back seat to private enterprise in terms of who runs our society, it matters less the rights we have in relation to government and matters more the rights we have in relation to those who actually rule us. Fall is a pretty neat time of year. The leaves change, the harvest comes, we put out corn stalks and scarecrows and pumpkins. And in that spirit, Helen and Valerie of Falling in Love Montage recently did a fun episode on the cult classic Hocus Pocus with Bette Midler, so be sure to check that out. And soon, they're dropping a new episode on the classic John Hughes film Some Kind of Wonderful. I'm a big fan of John Hughes' 80s films, so I'm looking forward to that. Be sure to subscribe to Falling in Love Montage on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and most other podcatchers or go to their website, FallingInLoveMontage.com, so you can check out their most recent episode and be ready for the next one once it drops. And for all Flying Machine Network shows, go to shows. Thank you so much for listening to PotStirter Podcast. If you enjoy the podcast, subscribe on iTunes or on Android. Go to com slash download and you'll see the links. If you subscribe, you can get new episodes once they come out so you don't miss a thing. If you enjoyed the podcast, please give us five stars and leave a review. And check out the Pot Storer Podcast discussion group on Facebook, share personal stories and discuss current events and political issues in a welcoming and engaging space with great people. So go to facebook.com slash Podcast and the link to the group is on the page. So join today. I'm Jay Poole. Let's fight for America's future, because freedom is not free. I give you the incredible flying machine.